My wife has asked me if I'm nervous multiple times this morning. Nervous, no. Anxious, yes. A little uneasy sometimes. Um, like I told many of people already, I feel like this is a homecoming, literally because I've practically lived on the property for the past few years. Um, and so it's a little nerve-wracking, to say the least, but it's a, a time also of, of new beginnings as we celebrate the new year. Um, and, and just a show of hands, did anybody make a New Year's resolution this year? I see a couple of hands going up. Um, how many of you that made one have already broken your New Year's resolution? I see some more hands going up. Um, I, I was researching New Year's resolutions to kind of figure out why we do them, what we do. And I found out that, that many people, actually 62% in this survey that I saw, feel pressured to make a New Year's resolution. Pressured to make some sort of change or, or shift in their lives. They, they feel like, oh, there's something I could do better, maybe. And what do you think the most common New Year's resolutions are? I heard, I heard some folks say lose weight. Um, that's actually 48% of people say that they've made some sort of physical fitness New Year's resolution. I'm either going to lose weight or I'm going to work out more or I'm going to diet better. I'm looking over here. I got my doctor over here. He's, he'd tell me, yeah, you need to eat a little bit better every now and then. I, 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 that's my resolution. I'm going to eat better. And then 38% would say to improve their finances. Whether that be put more into savings, whether that be maybe that they're going to go try to find a new job to make a little bit more, they're going to spend a little bit more efficiently, whatever it may be. And then I found out that most people, and you may be one of these, but most people, believe it or not, don't just make one resolution. They make two or three or four and, and I just look at mine, and I'm like, man, it's already difficult enough for me to keep one resolution. Why would you make so many of these resolutions? And, and I started to ask around and, and talk to some folks, and what I found out is it's because people know that they're going to fail their resolutions. And so if I've got six of them and I accomplish at least one, I'm okay. I'm all right. And so we find ourselves setting ourselves up for failure. And I think, as I think about the resolutions that many of us create, the reason in which we fail is this. Because what we are trying to do is behavior modification with no real desire for change. We're saying, I'm going to eat better, hoping, but our real desire is not that we want to eat better. Let's just be honest. Not, nobody says, I'm going to give up chocolate because I don't like chocolate. No. But, but we do it because we want the end result. And so we think that changing our behavior will get us there. But we, we don't really, really want to do it. And I think this year what we're going to see, and I hope is that as we move forward, that God is not seeking simple behavior modifications so that we can go, oh, I'm good, we're all good. But that God is seeking a heart change that will lead to a real change within each and every one of us. 
That I, I think sometimes we can look at our New Year's resolutions and we say things like, my resolution is that I'm going to spend more time in prayer or more time in the scriptures. And don't mishear me as the preacher. Those are all good things. But why? Why are you resolving to do that? Is it simply so that you can wake up in the morning and go, I did it, Jesus, check that off my list, so that whenever you get to the pearly gates and St. Peter goes, hey, well, I see that you did prayer time for 2024, good job. Or is it because God has laid it on your heart that God has transformed something in you that you long to spend that time with God? In the new year, on the church calendar, and if you went to the traditional service last week, I apologize because you've already heard this scripture, but the 6th of January is something known as Epiphany, and what Epiphany represents is that time where the wise men showed up, where they encountered the Christ child, and so with, with that in mind, let us look at Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And it says these words, that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it arose and have come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born, and they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah." For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, O Israel. And when Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may go and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So in our text this morning, we, we see really two ways that we can approach the new year. Two ways in which we can approach this, this word that none of us really like, if we're honest. Change. Anybody like change? Okay, I don't see any hands going up. That's like a first time ever for me as a preacher. When you ask a question, nobody's like, me. Nobody likes change. And what we see in our, our text this morning is we see two ways to deal with change. You've got King Herod and you've got the wise men. 
And I, I want to start with King Herod because here's what I, I started to realize about King Herod is it's not so much that he doesn't like change as it is that he doesn't want to give up control. Can I get an amen on that one? It's not that we don't like change. We just want to be in control of the change, of what needs to change. In other words, sometimes we do it this way. I don't need to change. You're the one that needs to change. And if you would change to be like me, everybody would be okay. Is that just me? Okay, okay, that's just me. Got it, got it. So, uh, but King Herod, he, he's fearful. He's not, he doesn't want to give up control. He doesn't want to give up the kingdom that he has worked so hard to create. And so he becomes fearful of change. What happens if this new king shows up? If I'm no longer in charge, if I have to give up authority... Or, and so we may find ourselves in that thought process, or you may find yourself believing that you've got it all figured out, and there's no need for you to change. When I started seminary, my first class in seminary, I walked in, and, and the professor had us all seated there, and he said, I want everybody to just give me a few words as to, that you would use to define God. As you can imagine, we, we started shouting them out, love, mercy, grace, hope, all these wonderful things. And he had a list of about 50 on the board. And then he said, all right, now I want you to cut that list down to 10. We did. He said, all right, now I want you to cut that list down to one. And me, knowing it all, unwilling to change, believing I had God all figured out, Proclaim to my professor in seminary, Sir, with all due respect, if you can define God with one word, <laughs> your God is too small. That didn't go over so well. <laughs> Especially when I later went to the office of the dean of students and found out my professor was, in fact, the dean of students. And so as we look at this story and as we look at how we can wrestle with our own understanding, even of who God is, because I want to point out the wise men, when they see the star and they, they've heard the telling of this new king, where do they go? They go to the castle. They go to the palace. They go to how they understand kings to work. And they say, this must be where he is. Now granted, hindsight being 2020, that's not the best idea to go to the current ruling king and go, hey, we're looking for the new guy that's going to replace you. But what they've came to realize is that they didn't have it all figured out. And I love the fact that they didn't have it all figured out, even as wise men, because it reminds me of one of my favorite quotes of all time from my favorite author, Donald Miller. And Donald Miller puts it very plain and simple when he says, I can no more understand the totality of God than the blueberry in my pancake can understand the totality of me. In other words, if you think you've got God all figured out, you need to think again. If you think you understand all that God is and all that God does and all that God thinks, you need to think again. Because here's what we need to understand, that God is infinite and our minds are finite, meaning we can only understand what we can understand. And this is a hard truth to handle, isn't it? 
Especially if you're like me and you grew up going to church. You grew up sitting on the front pew because your daddy was a preacher and your mama was in the choir. And you grew up with the choir director staring a hole in you every time you misbehaved. You thought you had it all figured out. I'm the one that growing up, if somebody was to start reading a scripture, I'd go, oh, I know how that one goes. And i just kind of gloss over it because I already understood it. And then as I started to grow older and started to mature in my faith, I started to realize that what had happened in my faith was that I was just simply seeking to appease what I wanted to appease. That I had adopted a faith that made it easy for me to hear. And if it wasn't easy for me to hear, then I just acted like it wasn't there. Oh, I know, I know that Jesus says that I'm forgiven. I like that part. I know that Jesus says he's cast my sin as far as the east is from the west. I love that part. I know that he says your past does not define you. That's wonderful. But then he says love your neighbor. Bless those that persecute you. Love all people. And, and, and I love the fact that so often we can get it kind of confused in our own brain and we start to manipulate things to say, I'm in and I'm good because this is what I understand the Scripture to mean. They're not in and they're not good because they don't follow my interpretations. And this is what happens in our text this morning if you keep reading. Because what happens is Herod has his own understanding of who's in charge and who the king is, and it's him. He sits on the throne. He's the ruler that everybody listens to. He is the epitome of what it means to have power. And so what happens when something challenges that, pushes him to the possibility of needing to change, to rethink, starts to doubt a little bit. Well, I wish I could say, well, Herod just goes, oh, yes, wonderful, a new king, absolutely welcome him in. I'm willing to pass it off. But if you find yourself reading the scriptures, what happens is he actually says, when was he born? And then he looks to his people and he goes, any babies that were born within that time frame, kill them. I'm not willing to have this change come about. I'm not willing to give up my control and my understanding. Because what happens is we do what Herod did, and we create a God in our own image. I'm going to repeat that. We happen to do what Herod did, and we create God in our own image. You may be of a certain age and remember a comedian named Jeff Foxworthy who did you-might-be-a-redneck jokes. Well, I started thinking about that, and I started thinking about ways in which we can tell if we've created God in our own image. And so, just a couple of them. Um, if your God hates the same people that you do, you've probably created God in your own image. If you've never been challenged by God, or your faith has never been pushed by God, probably created God in your own image. If you think that others are beyond God's grace, it's a pretty good telltale sign. Or the flip of that is this, if you think that you are worthy of God's grace, you may have created God in your own image. 
And when we do this, the worry is this, that we don't see the need for our own change. We see the need for everybody else to change. We don't, we don't wrestle with our own faith. When's the last time that you wrestled with your faith? When's the last time that, that you doubted and, and, and worried with stuff? That you struggled with stuff? Because here's the thing. I firmly believe this about my faith. And I firmly believe this about my God. That my faith in God is strong enough that any doubt, fear, worry, or concern, God can handle. And so the problem is, is too frequently we go, ah, there's no room for doubt here. There's no room for worry here. There's no room for debate here. And I would say, if we can't do that here within God's house as the people of God, where can we do it? Isn't that what the church is supposed to be? A safe haven for people to come to understand who God is and what God is doing? To wrestle with that faith and understanding of who God is? But we can find ourselves pushing back. Yeah, you're allowed to come in, but only... You can come in here only if you think like I do, only if you look like I do, only if you act like I do, only if you vote like I do, only if you cheer for the same team that I do. And we become bouncers to the kingdom of God. And we're not called to be bouncers to the kingdom of God. We're called to be doormen and women that open the door and say, hey, come on in. You're welcome here. We'll figure it out together as we journey together, just like the wise men did. Now, mind you, the wise men aren't just frivolously wandering about in their own doubt and fear. They're obviously observant because they saw the star at its rising. And you kind of got to be observant to see a star when it first appears, I would think. But what they found out when they encountered Christ is this. Christ did not come to give us more of the same. That, that many of us, are, we think that, that we have God all figured out and what God is going to give us is the thing that God has always given us. And we talk about it in ways like this. That's just the way we've always done it. It is what it is. We, we, we know and we do things so that we know what the results will be and so that we can expect things. But here's the thing that I want to challenge us to is this. What if we don't do more of the same? What if we dream bigger? What if we, like the wise men, encounter God, we wrestle with our doubts and fears, but when we leave, we leave changed by a new way? As I said before, I would be worried if you were here and you've never had doubts or questions, if you've never wrestled with your faith. And I take it one step further, and, I, and I'm not, not going to apologize a little bit for if I step on toes, but if you haven't ever really been challenged to shift or change your understanding of God, have you truly encountered God? Or have you just placed something on that throne that you began to worship, like a Herod? 
Because of their faith, the wise men are moved to action. And through their action, they encounter the new king, the true king, the king that came to change everything. And it leads them to leave differently than the way they showed up. Disclaimer, warning, whatever terminology you want to use, that too frequently, especially in church life, this can happen. So I want to warn us against this, that we don't fall prey to paralysis by analysis. And what I mean by that is sometimes I think we can look at the church and go, this is where God's calling us. This is what God's calling us to do. And we become so overwhelmed by the totality of the shift that we don't take the first step. We want to draw out a whole road map as to how we're going to get to the, to the end. And God's going, I just need you to trust me with the next step. As the old adage says, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. And so I don't want us to become so overwhelmed with God laying something on your heart and saying, this is where God's calling us to go. But that's a big undertaking. Take the first step. Take the first bite. And after you take that step, ask God, where is it that you're calling us to next? I mean, you, you look around the churches. How did, how did this exact worship service start? Because people were willing to go, you know what? I'm going to take the next step. And the next. And the next. So in 2024, in your walk with God, in your walk with your family, where is it that God is calling you to shift, to change, to go a different way? It may be that God's calling you and saying, hey, start something at your church. It may be that God's calling you as a family member to say, you know what? My family, we're going to sit down and eat dinner together once a week so that we can just share with each other. It may be something as simple as the fact that God is calling you to say, hey, I'm going to provide donuts for Sunday morning. It's a small thing, but somebody has to do it and we give thanks for it. Where is it that God is calling you? to take that next step in faith. To not fall victim to doing the same thing again and again and again. Let this be the year that as we encounter Christ, we are changed by and through His very presence. 